Welcome to the What We Talked About in Class podcast, brought to you from the campus of Wayne Community College in Goldsboro, North Carolina, sponsored by the Foundation of Wayne Community College. Um, and in addition to that, you're going to see all these uh, jobs like cashiers are going to go away. And here's, here's the next thing we haven't talked about when we're talking about leveraging technology for, co- for uh, company growth. You're eventually going to see all self-driving transportation uh, for not only consumers, but it's going to start with there's so many thousands and thousands of trucks on the road every day. These big 18-wheelers. They're going to be self-driving because it's going to be in the interest of the companies to have self-driving vehicles where they can program a truck to go from here to there, point A to point B. You don't have to legally stop like a truck driver can only drive for so many hours for they're legally required to park for X amount of hours to rest. So you won't have to worry about any of that. You can run those trucks 24-7, 365 without, and all you need to do is just maintain them. You know, like you have to worry about, number one, they're going to be all electric. You don't have to worry about human error. Um, they're going to be a thousand times safer than a human driver. Even though they still could make mistakes and have and cause an accident, they're not going to make the same type of mistakes a human would from texting while driving, being distracted, eating while driving, falling asleep at the wheel, those types of things that occur. So all the truck drivers are eventually going to go away. It may take 15, 20 years. To, it could, I mean, it could be five or 10 years. I doubt it, but it's coming in the next couple of decades. But that's also going to displace anybody that's an Uber driver, a taxi driver, anything like that. And then eventually, um, I would say in the you know, 10, 20, 30 year time frame, con- regular consumers are not going to be able to drive a, a car that is a manual. It'll have to be self-driving simply because of insurance purposes. The insurance company is going to say, do you want a self-driving car? And you say, no. Well, since you don't, you're driving manual still, your insurance rate is going to be double what it would be if it was a self-driving car because the computer is a thousand times safer than a human driver. The computer doesn't make nearly as many mistakes. I forget how many traffic accidents we have. Let's look at it. Let's look it up. We'll Google it real quick. How, oops, how many car, yeah, per day. Yeah, let's see. In the United States, 16,438. Uh, car accidents per day. That's based on July uh, 2021 statistics. So imagine we could take that down to 16 per day. You know, that that is, I think, the next evolution. You know, of where we're going. And uh, we, when we do manufacturing, big time manufacturing, we look at on a parts per million uh, of error. Uh, this thing called Six Sigma. Anybody ever heard of this? So we look at parts per million and we say, how many parts per million of these things we're producing are, are errors? And we would do the same thing when it looks at you know, auto accidents and say, well, we, we have a million transportations happening with consumers by machines and only one or two per million you know, or less. You know? So uh, I, I think this is going to be an interesting next couple decades because We've just more and more leveraged technology to make things cheaper, better, faster, safer. Um, Any comments on any of this stuff? No, we don't want to talk. We don't want to talk. It's okay. All right. Well, let's talk about the history of management a little bit. Since we talked about the future, 
of companies. Um, let's talk about some historical context real quick. Um, let's see if this will, I hope it'll let me do it. Yeah, let me flip this. All right, so the history of management, um, once again, like I may have said this to you before, I kind of uh, do repeat myself a little bit, but it's because uh, I have two concurrent classes going and I don't know which, which story I've told, but uh, from the historical perspective, uh, some people think that management is just a job where you got a boss and they bark orders, they tell you what to do, and there's no real uh, rhyme or reason to it. You know, there's no planning, there's no uh, theory or any of that. But as it turns out, management has a rich history and there is an evolution of thought that's occurred over thousands of years. And so this chapter jumps into talking about uh, the history of management and some of the, that evolution that's occurred. And so the ideas we present today and future ideas of management uh, all do derive from this historical context. And let me give you like one thing that's happened in modern management um, theory. Like used to be in the past 50, 100 years, managers had this thinking of stick and carrots. Stick meaning that if you didn't do what they wanted you to do, they would punish you, or carrots, they would offer you incentives to, to do things. You know, if you're good, if you're a good little worker, we'll give you a $5 bonus or a $50 bonus or whatever. And what we've learned by actually studying the science behind human motivation is that people do respond to incentives, but not as much as you think. What people would much rather have, as it turns out, is a good quality, caring, empathetic, understanding work environments where they feel like they are valued they are valued as an individual. They are valued from the effort they put forth and that they intrinsically like what they do and feel like it makes a difference. I was pretty miserable at Walmart. I wasn't completely miserable, but I felt low a lot of times because I felt like the work I was doing didn't matter. I would straight, I would work pretty hard. I mean, I think I did a good job for Walmart, honestly, and I'm trying to be objective about it. But I would work hard to make sure the store looked great, the back room was organized, and every day all that hard work would get destroyed. You know, every, it's like a Greek tragedy. Have you heard of uh, these Greek tragedies where like the guy rolls the boulder up the mountain every, every day and then it rolls back down? Or the lady who has a pot of water, she goes, picks it up, and it's got holes in it, and by the time she gets back home, it's out of water. Yeah, Walmart is very much a Greek tragedy if you work there because you pick, you pick up the pieces every day, you put it back together, and then it breaks all apart again. Uh, and uh, it's demoralizing from a worker standpoint. It was to me, but also to the... Uh, the people that work there that had to go through that. So we're going to um, talk a little bit more about six and carrots and motivation as we, as we evolve this conversation. So this chapter, uh, describe management in the ancient world. How did the Italian Renaissance affect the progression of management theory? How did the Industrial Revolution affect the progression of management theory? How did Frederick Winslow Taylor influence management theory? And how did efficiency in management affect current management theory? How do bureaucratic and administrative management complement scientific management? Remember I talked about uh, like scientific method and there is some scientific method that goes into management too and decision making. How did um, Elton Mayo influence management theory and how did the human relations movement affect current management theory? And how did contingencies and systems management transform management thought? And so this human relations movement, just to speak on that briefly before I jump into the early part of the chapter, like, like I said before, um, decades ago, it was, it was thought of 
there was not a really good management employee relationship. They were very much at odds. And from the management owner perspective, you're there to do a job. You're there to do what we want you to tell you to do. We don't really care about you. We don't care about uh, incentives. We don't care about your safety. We don't care about health care or any of that kind of stuff. You're just here to do a job, and we're going to pay you, and that's it. And then, then they griped having to pay people, you know. Uh, and, in fact, if you look at the early days of the Industrial Revolution, safety was a major issue. People would lose fingers, hands. They would get uh, injured or killed on the job. They had children working in factories that would get injured or killed. So we've come a long way in, in those aspects, trying to make sure that workers have a safe work environment. So we'll continue that conversation when we get to it. So let's look at some of the early contributors to management theory and thought. The Sumerians, they came up with this concept of writing and trade. Hammurabi had a written commandments and they, they talked about commands and controls. There's this actual code we're gonna look at in a minute, Hammurabi's code, that was uh, pretty straightforward on how people should conduct, conduct themselves through trade and, and commerce. Nebuchadnezzar came up with this idea of incentives we should pay people for for their work, and if we do that, uh, they will perform better. And so even though we've learned that compensation is just one piece of the puzzle, it's not the complete uh, piece, um, we also know there's other things that we have to do to try to connect people to uh, their intrinsic desire to do good work. Um, there's actually, just as a quick digression, there's actually this theory out there called Theory X and Theory Y, um, and there's actually a, a Z theory as well, but. Theory X and Theory Y basically says that X is people don't like to work. They're not naturally inclined to work. They'll avoid it when possible. Theory Y states that people are naturally inclined to work, do enjoy it, and will um, work when, when presented with the opportunity. And the truth is kind of a blend of both those theories, and it really depends on the context and the individual. Um, ancient Egyptians, they came up with this idea of division of labor, coordination, and span of control. Um, if you think about what it took to build the pyramids, you have this division of labor occurring. Somebody's focused on building bricks. Somebody is focused on moving those bricks from point A to point B. Somebody is the architect or the builder that focuses on how this thing's going to get done. Somebody's in charge of providing food and resources to the workers so that they can stay healthy and keep them going. And so there's this very much this division of labor that's happening, and then you've got actually a, uh, a what's the word I'm looking for? Basically, a, the beginning formings of a management structure where you'll have a supervisor that's making sure the people are doing these different actions that need to happen in order for the whole thing to come together. Sun Tzu, uh, you may have heard of Sun Tzu, or if you haven't heard of uh, Sun Tzu, you may have heard of Art of War. This is a book that is still studied in management school and business school today because although it's a writing that is focused on uh, warfare, the same strategies and tactics are still applicable to the business world. Um, so things like understanding your opponents, um, like not attacking them directly, you know, using their weaknesses against them. You know, like if your opponent is really bad at social media, you should use that in your favor, you know, like, and so that's, that's, that's kind of what Sun Tzu is all about. The Han Dynasty, development of bureaucracy. Bureaucracy is, is a infrastructure that allows for better quality decision making. You know, somebody proposes something, it goes through a review process, 
There's a, a vote or a consensus on what we should do. There's oversight once there's decisions made to do something. Uh, and then a review process. So this is what bureaucracy is. And then ancient Greece also, Greeks had this division of labor idea also. Um, Romans came up with standardization. One of the things they specifically contribute to is this idea of standardization of processes, including things like um, coinage. So in the ancient world, as we were developing money systems, currency, uh, a coin might have different weights and values. You know, this coin may be X amount of pure gold or X amount of pure silver. And they went, the Romans went to a standardization process in which they said, we're going to mint every coin to look exactly this shape, exactly this weight, exactly this amount of gold or silver and have this value. Um, they did eventually uh, <laughs> play with that. You know, the, one of the emperors said, uh, I, don't, I want to start devaluing the money and taking some of the gold out. They would melt down coins, cut some of the gold out for themselves and then put in base metals. The people caught on to that and the money, money did devalue. The Italians came up with accounting corporations and multinational corporations. And then lastly, John Florio, uh, translating management to the English language. And so the, this chart is located in the book, and it just kind of gives you a brief overview of kind of the evolution of management thought. So let's talk a little bit about Hammurabi's code. I mentioned it already. The code of Hammurabi is a well-preserved ancient law created between 1810 uh, B.C. and 1750 B.C. So you're talking something that's roughly 4,000 years old in ancient Babylon. It's a listing of 282 laws that regulated conduct on a wide variety of behaviors, including business dealings, personal behavior, interpersonal relations, and punishments. Law 104 was one of the first instances of accounting and the need for formal rules for owners and managers. Yeah, how to keep records. Why is that important? Um, it also included punishments for things like if you steal, you've heard of like an eye for an eye, you know. Um, so if you were caught stealing, uh, they would do, do very punitive stuff like cutting fingers and hands off and things like that. So um, they wanted to have some type of social construct where we could have a more modern society and a way for people to understand how to conduct business with each other. Trying to create a formalized system, and that's what Hammurabi's code did. It's really interesting to see. This is a cross-section of the actual uh, writings of, of Hammurabi, and it's, it's pretty neat to see how that actually looked. Um, questions about any of this so far? Okay. All right. So... Taking a big leap forward, the Industrial Revolution created the conditions necessary for the development of modern management theory. And uh, basically, we started out as an agrarian society. Uh, when, we, when this country was founded, it was mostly uh, farm-based or agriculture-based. You know, people lived very remotely, and they would have these hubs, these small towns where... Basically, it might be like a post office, general store, very, very basic, you know, uh, commerce. And farmers would travel to these this, these different uh, outposts and do exchanges, and they would be able to exchange, uh, you know, whatever crop they had for store credit and then buy, you know, whatever things they need to go back. Really rudimentary basic stuff, salt, sugar, spices, things like that, and supplies they may need. Um, 
In his masterpiece, The Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith proposed the idea of specialization and coordination within corporations as a source of economic growth. Specialization and division of labor were Smith's major contributions to management thought. Adam Smith was um, remarkable in a number of ways besides this. He also had this idea of the invisible hand theory. Has anybody ever heard this before? So the invisible hand theory basically states that uh, if people will seek out their own selfish interests, uh, it will make the, eco- the entire economy flourish. So let me break that down a little bit more for you. Um, this idea of, like, will somebody, does anybody want anything specifically for lunch, as an example? Cheeseburger? Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A. I love Chick-fil-A. Okay. So look, that's a good example. So I, love, I like Chick-fil-A, too. What do you get when you go? Just curious. Eight count nugget meal with a large fry and a lemonade. And what kind of sauce do you get with that? Polynesian. Polynesian, okay. So look at all the things that happened for you to get that meal to you. So the nuggets themselves, the, so the chicken, you've got the batter and the coating on the chicken nugget. You've got the carton the chicken nuggets comes in. You've got the carton the fries come in. The fries themselves. You've got the, the cup, the lemons, the water, you know, the Polynesian sauce and the packaging. There's a lot of just I just picked out 10 things that come together to give you that meal. And so, like, if you start taking each aspect of that and, and spreading it out, just start with the nugget itself. That chicken was grown on a farm somewhere, and the farmer that produced it, you know, they had to get the chickens together. They had to get the feed together to feed those chickens. They had to get any type of, uh, I don't know if there's any type of medication or anything they do to make sure the chickens are staying healthy. Um, so the, all the resources that go into producing that chicken, then it has to be you know, sold, processed. Uh, so that goes to a factory to process into nuggets. And that's just, and all the people that touch it on the way, the, the truck driver that transports it. And so that's just for just the nugget. And then some other company is making the, the batter to, to toss these things in to make them happen, you know. And so, by you seeking out that chicken nugget meal for lunch, which sounds really good, by the way, by you seeking that out, though, it actually helps employ all the people connected to those things that makes that one meal happen. Uh, and, yeah, I, I use the cheeseburger example, too, where, what you know, you've got the bun, you've got the burger, the spices, the cheese, uh, all the different various aspects of toppings and whatnot, condiments. All those different things had to come together in order for you to get that burger but look at all the people that touch it, all the employment that happens because of you wanting to eat that cheeseburger. And so, yeah, and then when you go to work, when you go to Starbucks, you're uh, meeting the needs of other people. You're there to provide labor so that other people can enjoy their coffee. And in return for that, you'll get a check so that you can go buy your nuggets, you know. And so that's what Invisible Hand Theory is all about. And so by all of us selfishly pursuing our, our needs, whether they be food, shelter, clothing, or other things we want, by us doing that, it helps employ and keep the economic engine going. Um, Any comments on any of that? So the division of labor meant that a worker specialized in performing one task that was part of a larger series of tasks at the end of which a product would be produced. The idea of specialization of labor had several important outcomes. First, specialization drastically reduced the cost of goods. Second, it drastically reduced the need for training. 
Instead of learning every aspect of a task, workers need to learn one portion of it. And then uh, lastly or thirdly, the need to coordinate all of these different tasks required greater emphasis on management. And so um, I talked about Mount Off Pickles. I think, did, does, has anybody worked there or it was that my other class? You work there now, okay. And so I, I apologize because I, I thought it was you, but I've, I've, like, I've got another class and I'm like, did I mention that? But there's a lot of specialization that happens in Mount Off Pickle Plant, right? Um, people have one job to do, whether it's stuffing the jars or the person counting the jars that are being stuffed. I know that you inspect the glass, right? You're, making, you're the jar checker. And so by you doing that one task, you get really good at it. You're the expert. You can probably do it faster than anybody else in the factory because that is your job. And it allows for us to keep production up. But if you had to bounce from job to job to job every day of the week, not only, I mean, it's going to challenge you because uh, you're not an expert at any one of them. But this specialization idea, by having one person do one job, they get really good at it. It allows for greater outputs. It actually allows for greater job satisfaction because people actually like to do jobs that they're good at. It's not fun to go to work every day and feel like, even if you're trying hard, you're still having a mediocre output. So if you get really good at something, there is a pride that comes with that. Uh, even though like I had some challenges at Walmart, I still had pride when I knew I did a good job and the store looked great and I felt, felt good about it going home. But, oh man, <laughs> there were some, some bad beats too where I knew the store was just okay and it was kind of out of my control. I mean, you, you, you do the best you can with the work, workers you've got. Sometimes people would call out and create some of these challenges. But in any case, as I mentioned, specialization did place this emphasis on the need for managers to be able to coordinate all this to make sure the people had the resources they need, uh, the training they need, in order to be able to perform these specialized tasks. So the success of scientific management lifted workers into the middle class. So this was a boon for everybody. Remember I said we were an agrarian society. Most farmers were poor in the early days of the United States. Um, they made just enough to sustain themselves and their family. There wasn't a lot of excess. You know, they, they would basically, they were paycheck to paycheck. You know, we're going to have a crop. It's going to yield X amount of uh, goods and we're going to have enough money to buy seed for the next year and provide for our families. But there wasn't this huge abundance that occurred. What allowed for abundance uh, was technology. They were able to plant more and more using less and less land and have higher yields. So over the past several decades, we've had things like GMOs and uh, seed that has been modified in a way to have better yields, better sprout percentages. Uh, you could probably speak to that. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah, and so like now when you grow corn, you grow on it like how is it three inches apart or four inches? How how far apart are stalks now? They're they're pretty tight in there. Yeah. The I have no idea, but I'll say when your granddad's farming, I would say a germination rate might be ninety percent something like that. But now it's probably like ninety eight percent. You know, it's probably real high yield that you're getting. And it always impresses me when I drive by a cornfield and I see all this germination thinking, man, they, they really nailed it, you know, because they've got the soil just right for the, the seed to take it and they've got the moisture just right. I mean, like, you're seeing these seeds really take off. It's, it's really impressive. And all that is because we've levered, levered technology in a way that allows us to produce more with less and increase that abundance, you know, and that's what we're looking for. So 
The crucial development has been attributed to one person in particular, Frederick Winslow Taylor. Frederick Taylor was born in 1856, died in 1915, is known as the father of scientific management. Uh, another one of Taylor's significant contributions to the practice and profession of management was the concept of first-class work. When Taylor developed the notion of first-class work, he did so with the idea that workers should do as much work as they are physically and mentally capable of doing. Those who were not physically or mentally capable of keeping up with the production and job demands were sent to different areas in the plant where they could work most effectively. Taylor also developed a task management system that allowed work to occur more efficiently and allow for breaking up a supervisor's work so that he or she could function within a discrete area of activities. <clears throat> so just to speak to this first class work notion, have, have you guys heard of a bell curve? You, maybe, okay. So a bell curve looks kind of like this and it exists in a, lot, in a lot of systems. And so there's this distribution that occurs in, in most systems that you find where there's this tendency towards the average. And a few people are all stars. Most people, you know, a big chunk of them fall to this average BCD range. <clears throat> and then you have a few people that fail, right? And if you look at employees, if you have, let's say 20 employees, right? You're gonna have some employees that are excellent. They're always on time, they do great work. You don't have to worry about them. Then you have some people that are terrible. They don't do a good job. They don't show up on time. They have high absenteeism. They have high levels of apathy. <clears throat> They're just, they need to go, right? And so most people stay right in the middle here, this BCD average, because they want to work hard enough to be ignored, basically. They don't want to be, they don't want to have to work harder than they're supposed to. Because if everybody's making $10 an hour, <clears throat> why, why do you feel obligated to produce more than everybody else, right? So there's very few people that are gonna do exceptional work. But you don't wanna be this person either down here that's not doing good work because you're gonna be a target for management. They're gonna look at you and say, <clears throat> well, this person's terrible, we need to fire this person, let's get rid of them fired. And so the same thing is true actually in classes. Now, most students are gonna fall right in this range of BCD. Some of them are gonna do exceptional work and there's gonna be some that are not very good at all and they don't put a lot of effort into it. Um, so you see this distribution happen in a lot of places. And so <clears throat> same thing's true with first class work. Um, most people fall around that C average or 70th percentile where they do just enough to justify them being there, but they're not gonna overdo it or underdo it. They wanna just kind of be middle of the pack. There is this central tendency that exists within systems. And so any questions or comments on that? So that's called a bell curve. You see it present itself uh, pretty often. <clears throat> there's also, uh, one more thing I'll add to this, there's also an adoption curve. So uh, what was your first cell phone that you ever had? What kind of phone was it? iPhone 3G. iPhone 3G? Did anybody, was anybody's first uh, cell phone not a smartphone? What'd you have? It was <coughs> Okay, was it was a slider, or just a just it's just a just a basic phone that keyboard on? Okay, um, my first cell phone was a bag phone that was about this big. It was a bag and it had a cord on it. Yeah, had a cord on it, and you had it in the car. You pick it up, attached to a cord, and 
the plan, you only got 30 minutes a month. No text. Didn't have text yet. So I could call some, some people and spend $30, 30 minutes a month on the phone. If you went over 30 minutes, it was extremely expensive per minute. Like, I think $1 to $2 per minute over 30 minutes. That was the first cell phone. Then we went to, uh, I had a slider, I think was the, the next cell phone I had. Then I got like a, a Blackberry, which was a Blackjack. It wasn't the traditional Blackberry, it was a little different style. Then I got a Razor. I think, the, remember the thin Razor flip phones? Those were really cool, I still like the Razor. Um, and then after that, I got the iPhone 1, the first iPhone, I had that. Kept that for a while, then the next iPhone I got was iPhone 4. Then I got, I skipped the five, I got a six, seven, uh, I don't think I got an eight. I think I kept the seven for a while, then I jumped up to like the 11, I think. I think I kept the seven for a while. Um, but anyway, I mentioned this is because when we first introduced smartphones into the market, uh, let, me, let me clear this out. Yeah, you know, when we first inter uh, introduced smartphones into the market, there was a group of people who were the early adopters, the EAs, and I guess I was one of them, you know, like this first uh, few percent of people that are gonna get it. And then you've got uh, late adopters right here, and then um, you've got the majority have adopted at this point, and then you've got the, the laggards at the very end. These people like may reluctantly eventually get one. My father-in-law, still has a non-smartphone device. He's the only person in my family that I know of that doesn't have a smartphone. And when I have to help him with it occasionally, it's like, it's, even, it's hard to operate. I don't even know how to operate it. I'm like, how do you use this thing? You know, because it's such an annotated, like, like dated model at this point. So the reason I just showed you that is because uh, this bell curve will keep popping up in your life. You'll see this representation. And I'm not gonna talk about it right now. It'll come up later, but there's also an S curve of adoption that, that we'll talk about at some point. So, all right. So we talked about Taylor. We talked about uh, first class work, and we talked about um, supervisors and the need for management. So this is an actual outline of what scientific management looked like, uh, or it does look like. First, you develop a science for each element of a man's work, which replaces the old rule of thumb method. Yeah, um, it used to be that people didn't scrutinize uh, the time it took to do things. My daughter made an observation yesterday, and we, we actually talked about it. She said, why do the UPS trucks don't, don't have doors on them? Like, it just seemed weird to her that the UPS or FedEx truck, they don't have doors on it, you know. One of them does. Uh, I, don't, I think FedEx might have doors, but UPS doesn't have the doors, or they, they ride with them open. And I said, well, it takes probably two to three seconds to open and close the door in one trip. And if you get out of the place 50 times a day, that's 150 seconds. It doesn't seem like much, but we added it up over time. It ended up being like 14 or 15 hours a year that these workers spend just opening and closing doors. You know, I mean, you think about it, you know, so, uh, but, and even at 15 hours, that doesn't sound like much, right? It's 15 hours a year. But if you've got 10,000 delivery drivers, doing that, you know, that starts to get some really big math. Let me look at the math on that. Uh, let's see. Somebody add it up for me. What's, what's 15 hours times 10,000? 10, 15 hours times 10,000, what do you got? 150,000. 
150,000 hours. Now divide that by 24. So that's how much day, so 15 hours times 10,000, and divide, you divide by 24. So that's 6,000 days worth of time lost in a year for a company just opening and closing doors. And that, that's, that's, that's what these companies are looking at. So they wanted to develop sciences that will uh, reduce the time and the steps involved in things, so simplify the process. One of the early time studies, they looked at bricklayers. And a bricklayer would have a pile of bricks. They go pick up the brick. They walk over here. They slide over the concrete on it and put it down. Then they walk back over here and pick up the brick again and keep doing that. And there's three or four steps in between each one. So they developed a system to have a feeder system where the bricklayer could just pick up a brick and do this and keep moving and not have to take those steps. It was like... It just reduced that amount, and it improved productivity like double. I mean, they were able to get so much more done. Second, after you develop that science, they scientifically select and then train each, teach, and develop the workman, whereas in the past they chose uh, his or her own work and trained himself or herself as best he could. So they want to have the right tool for the right job. I don't like to refer to people as tools, but they do serve a tool function within a system. You know, somebody does this, somebody does that. Third, they heartily cooperate with the men and women so as to ensure all the work being done in accordance with the principles of the science which has been developed. And then lastly or fourth, there's almost an equal division of the work and the responsibility between management and the work, uh, work men and women. The management takes over all the work for which they are better fitted than the work men or women. While in the past, almost all the work and the greater part of responsibility were thrown upon the workers. And so, <clears throat> um, basically, management says, you know, you're better suited to do this. You're an expert in this particular area. I'm better suited to do things like administrative tasks, supervision, hiring, terminations, discipline matters, things like that. And so, within a system, whether it's a college or it's a, uh, a grocery store or Starbucks, each individual does what their specialty is, and they get really good at that, and they're able to perform those tasks better than anyone else. All right, this last slide for today, we'll just talk briefly about um, uh, Henry Fayol. So writing at the same time as Taylor was Henry Fayol. He was born in 1841, died in 1925, and Max Weber, who was born in 1864 and died in 1920, they wrote complementary contributions to Taylor's four principles of scientific management framework. Taylor focused on the frontline managers, those who handled the workers. Fail focused on the top managers who set strategy, and Weber focused on middle managers who implement strategy. Although Taylor, Fail, and Weber viewed management from different perspectives, each stressed the need for logical, rational systems to coordinate and control various types of enterprises. Yeah, management is actually pretty complicated. Because uh, in a typical hierarchy, you've got uh, top managers like CEOs or presidents, and then middle, you've got these VPs, and then at the bottom, you've got frontline managers, and then you've got all the workers down here. And in a typical, like, I love using the military as an example. It goes right to like Sun Tzu, but also uh, the military does management very well. Um, military's mantra, has anybody been in the military? I, I have not. 
but studied military uh, management uh, processes and how it works. And basically, there is no questioning management. You know, like, if you send, if, if you talk to a frontline worker at a retail store, for example, they may kind of hem haul and not be really motivated, but they're without question, this is what your orders are in the military. You do them under penalty of, you know, like a court-martial or some other reprimand, reprimands. And so they have this straight up and down line, uh, chain of command and communication. Like, uh, for example, like you're gonna, a top level manager in the military, a general, a colonel, a major, they're gonna direct orders down to lieutenants and captains and things like this, who are gonna in turn talk to sergeants and other uh, uh, officers that are enlisted officers. Uh, and those people are going to talk to their frontline soldiers, workers, to make sure that these tasks are accomplished. So the same thing happens in uh, like the private sector as it does in the public sector. We have a chain of command here at the college. Uh, the president uh, is actually serves the board of directors and those that board make sure that the college is moving in the direction uh, upon which its mission is, is intended to do. And the president sends uh, information to the vice presidents and the deans, and they communicate it down to department chairs and so on and so forth. But yeah, we have this logical, rational system that we go through in order to make sure that things are being done the most efficiently, uh, most efficient way possible with the least amount of waste in order to accomplish the objectives of the organization. Time, time loss is a waste. Those days and hours I talked about with opening the door, that is direct, direct money being taken from the company. By taking the doors off, uh, you've actually increased the amount of profit the company has because these employees are not spending time opening and closing doors. Uh, they can do more, more with less. There's uh, more time they try to uh, get in with um, less resources. So uh, there was another one. Here, here, one last thing before I let you go. Walmart sent out this initiative years ago before I left. They wanted to, uh, the associates to come ways for the company to save money and also help the environment. Somebody came up with the idea to take the lights out of vending machines in the store. So if there was a Coke machine, you know, they have a backlit uh, display board or a cracker vending machine or snack vending machine, they would have a light to show off what's in there. <coughs> Somebody came up with the idea to take those out and it saved the company over a million dollars a year in power just from the lights in the vending machine because the company's got five or 6,000 stores. They've got, you know, half a dozen machines in each store at least. Take all those lights out. It saved the company over a million dollars in power. So the little ideas can have a big impact. So, all right, guys, we'll take a time out here for today. Pick it up on Thursday, and we'll, or I'm sorry, Friday. We'll wrap up the chapter, okay? I'll see you then.